Welcome to the third season of Murder in 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder in 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. Long before Trump Hotels landed in Florida, Benjamin Novak was building hotels along its sandy beaches. A charming smooth talker who was good with numbers and had a penchant for gold and diamonds. In the 1940s, he moved from Brooklyn to Miami Beach with $1,800 in his pocket. The U.S. Air Force trained his troops in Miami during World War II, and thousands of parents visited the city to see their sons off to war. Benjamin took notice. He had worked at his parents' resort and used that experience to buy a hotel on the beach. Over five years, he made enough money to buy five more hotels. He partnered with Harry Muffson, who introduced him to an up-and-coming architect from New York named Morris Lapidus. They hired Morris to design the lobby of their next hotel project. Although their collaboration was a smashing success, Benjamin and Harry had a falling out. Rumored to have happened when Harry played a practical joke on Benjamin and removed all the furniture from his office and changed the locks on the door. Benjamin didn't see the humor in it. The partners severed their relationship and vowed revenge on one another. Now Benjamin was married when he took a trip to New York and ran into Bernice Stemple, a young New York fashion model. Bernice grew up in a foster home. Ambitious, she used her good looks and vibrant red hair to land a modeling career and worked for companies like Coca-Cola in the 1950s. Benjamin fell head over heels for Bernice, but she wouldn't have anything to do with the married man and told him so. Benjamin returned home but couldn't forget her. The Miami Herald reported that a few years later when he got divorced, he showed up with his divorce certificate and asked her, Now can we date? The couple married, and on a trip across Europe, they toured England, France, and Switzerland. Just outside of Paris, they drove past the Palace of Fontainebleau, the medieval castle from the 12th century, with its Italian Renaissance style, was over-the-top opulent and an inspiration to Benjamin. Back in Miami Beach, the hotel scene was evolving. Gone were the everyday man's hotel, and in their place, massive hotels were being built along Ocean Drive, nicknamed Millionaire's Row. In 1952, Benjamin bought a mansion on Millionaire's Row, tore it down, and built his dream hotel, naming it the Fontainebleau. The exterior was modern looking. 
The exterior was modern looking. Its crescent shape was designed to be 45 degrees, so that almost all of its rooms had an ocean view. For the interior, he wanted the design to reflect the lavish inspiration he'd found in France. Bernice participated in the design and filled it with antique furniture. Its 17,000 square foot lobby was grand with black and white marble. The hotel had 435 rooms and a staff of 847. The hotel opened to much fanfare in 1954, with Benjamin calling it the eighth wonder of the world. The prestigious hotel soon became the place where movie stars, athletes, and presidents stayed. Performers included Elvis, the Rat Pack, and Liberace. Joe DiMaggio and Frank Sinatra had suites named after them. And it was common to see actresses such as Julie Garland, Marlene Dietrich, and Joan Crawford stroll through the lobby. Along with Presidents Harry Truman, John F. Kennedy, and Lyndon Johnson. Over the years, numerous movies were filmed at the hotel, including James Bond's Goldfinger, Frank Sinatra's Lady in Cement, and Jerry Lewis's The Bellboy. Seeing the success of the Fontainebleau, his former partner Harry set out to build one better. He bought land beside the Fontainebleau and hired Morris to design the Eden Rock. The sophisticated hotel, with its understated elegance, attracted the ultra-rich and instantly was a huge success. In the mid-50s, Benjamin and Bernice had a son, Ben Jr., and the family resided in the penthouse. A few years later, the hotel expanded and doubled its number of rooms. Then Benjamin planned a third expansion to triple its size. He wasn't happy seeing Harry's success right outside his window every day, so Benjamin made good on his threat to get revenge on his ex-business partner. Betrayed by Morris, he hired a new architect. The plans were kept secret, but soon it was obvious a 14-story tower was being built right next to the Eden Rock, where it would purposely tower over its pool area, causing it to be cloaked in darkness during the peak afternoon sunshine. Harry took the Fontainebleau to court to try and stop the construction, but the judge ruled in Benjamin's favor, saying the Eden Rock had no right to the air above the hotel or its views. Benjamin continued with construction. and ensured the wall facing the Eden Rock was solid cement, except for one lone window in the very top corner, where from his family's penthouse apartment, he could look down on the shaded abyss of his competitor and smile. For years, the wall was known as the Spite Wall. By 1960, Benjamin was worth $20 million. Any money he amassed, he poured back into the hotel. He never saved a penny for a rainy day, and soon 
the rain started to pour. Hotels in Las Vegas were being built with megawatts of glitz and glamour, pulling entertainers away from Miami because Las Vegas offered something Miami couldn't, gambling. Although Benjamin and Bernice divorced in 1968, the couple remained close. Particularly, when a judge ordered that Bernice and Ben Jr. could continue to live in the penthouse. By 1977, Benjamin's hotel was no longer financially viable. He declared bankruptcy, and a judge stripped him of his beloved hotel. After that, he never did step a foot back inside. Eight years later, he passed away. His fortune down to just one million. Over time, Bernice retired to an upscale home in Fort Lauderdale that she filled with expensive art. In a room sat a grand piano, once played by Frank Sinatra. Her neighbors had no idea of her past. Albums on the tables displayed photos of her and Benjamin with presidents and movie stars. She had a vast diamond collection and a large walk-in closet. The CBS News reported was filled with hundreds of dresses and ball gowns, each wrapped in plastic and tagged with the date and event she'd worn it to. Ben Jr. lived a privileged life of private schools and limousines, but growing up in a hotel was a lonely life for a child. Surrounded by adults, and in his teens, the ladies of the night that frequented the bars and hotel. Later, he built a successful career in planning events and conventions. Enjoying his success, he splurged on his obsession with Batman and amassed over a million-dollar collection, including a first edition of the Batman comic and a full-size replica of the Batmobile. Meanwhile, Narcy Valise and her brother Cristobal moved from Ecuador to the U.S. Cristobal settled down in Brooklyn, while Narcy, who had a young daughter, found work as a stripper at a club in Miami. That's where Ben met the working girl. Narcy hit the jackpot when she married Ben in 1991. Ben's mother, Bernice, didn't like Narcy. Over the years, their marriage was tense and turbulent. At one point, Ben filed for divorce, but the couple later reconciled. Narcy signed a prenup, but never thought she'd need it. But then, her husband developed wandering eye. People magazine described how after 17 years of marriage, Benjamin answered an online ad placed by a porn actress and began an affair with a $300 an hour call girl. Narcy found out about it. She wasn't about to lose Ben without a fight. She confronted the woman and offered her $10,000 to end it and told her if she couldn't have him, no other woman was going to. Narcy wasn't about to give up the plush life she'd been accustomed to. She knew Ben had generously provided for him as well and that his estate was worth around $10 million. But there was a glitch. His mother would also have control of the estate. So Narcy came up with a plan to kill two birds with one stone 
so to speak. First, she would eliminate Bernice, whose estate would be left to Ben. Then she'd eliminate Ben, and Narcy would inherit it all. She enlisted her brother's help. Cristobal, in turn, hired two hitmen. Men who were experienced, working at a car wash in Miami. He hired Alejandro Garcia and Joel Gonzalez. Court records revealed that Narcy provided her brother with precise instructions. Bernice was to be beaten and her teeth knocked out. On April 5, 2009, Cristobal drove Alejandro to Bernice's home. As dust settled in, he waited in the shadows. Hiding behind a garbage can near her driveway, he watched as Bernice came outside to move her car into the garage. He was ready. Alejandra pounced. She turned, saw him, and let out a scream. Without hesitation, he leaned in and, using a hefty plumber's wrench, hit Bernice over the head. He repeated the blows. Her jaw was broken as blood splattered up the walls and drenched her body. Bernice lay dead at 86. The medical examiner ruled that her massive skull and facial injuries were due to an accidental fall. So police didn't photograph the scene or gather evidence. But Bernice's sister Maxine didn't believe it and pushed for an investigation. Narcy was ecstatic. They'd gotten away with the first step. Now it was time to eliminate Ben. Three months later, in July, Ben was planning to be in New York, where he'd organized a large convention that would be attended by over a thousand Amway employees. Narcy again enlisted her brother Cristobal, who drove Alejandro and Joel to New York. They purchased tools and dumbbells, then checked into a hotel. Narcy arranged for them to be at a restaurant where she and Ben were dining so that they could identify him. Spotting them, she pointed at her husband by reaching over and stroking Ben's hair. Narcy again gave precise instructions, including that Ben was to be blinded and his eyes mutilated. On the morning of July 12th, Alejandro and Joel knocked on the door of room 53 at the Hilton Hotel. Narcy quietly opened it and led them to the bedroom where Ben was sleeping. Narcy placed a pillow over his face to muffle the screams. The men taped Ben's hands behind his back and bound his legs just below the knees. They taped his mouth shut and beat his ribs with the dumbbells, cracking 20 of them. Then they turned the attack towards his face and used a utility knife to gouge his eyes. His mouth had been taped so tight that he choked. 
then died at 53. Police interviewed Narcine. CBC News reported that she said, I walked in and tripped over something. I realized he was on the floor. And that Ben had a dark side. That he carried a lot of cash and someone must have killed him while she was downstairs having breakfast. And stated that she had nothing to do with her husband's death. But police didn't believe her and even suggested she'd hired a hitman to kill Ben so she could inherit his fortune, and that she'd even open the door for them. Narcy appeared shocked and told them, I don't need you or anybody else to yell at me or put pressure on me. I cannot take it. Just give me an electrical chair and put me out of my misery. A search warrant was issued for the Novak home. Police seized computers, paperwork, videotapes, and rolls of duct tape. Narcy was given a polygraph test. The results indicated deception when asked about her knowledge of Ben's murder. Hotel officials determined that a hotel key was not used to enter the hotel room that morning. And investigators wondered why, after two months, Narcy had failed to claim Ben's body. It was still stored at the county morgue. Well, that was because Narcy had better things to do. She was busy raiding Ben's safety deposit boxes, stealing cash, and selling off his Batman collection. Police visited Cristobal at his apartment and questioned him. While there, Officers noticed a Western Union receipt for $500 made out to Alejandro Garcia. Cristobal said nothing. But two weeks later, he told investigators that he discovered Alejandro was responsible for the murder. Now, Cristobal thought Alejandro had fled home to Nicaragua. But in fact, he'd never left the U.S., a few months later, Alejandro was arrested in Florida on an unrelated theft charge. In the spring of 2010, Alejandro pled guilty and was transferred to New York. There, he confessed to his role in the murders and implicated Joel. Under a plea agreement, both men pled guilty to lesser charges and agreed to testify against Narcy and Cristobal. They were charged with Ben's murder and racketeering for arranging his murder. Cristobal was also charged with witness tampering. At their joint trial in the summer of 2012, Ben's mistress took the stand and recounted how Narcy tried to pay her off. The New York Post reported that Alejandro and Joel testified, with Joel saying that Cristobal had promised him $15,000 and a tip for killing Ben. Then the trial took a twist. Their defense lawyer stated his clients didn't murder Ben, but rather it was Narcy's own daughter, because she had the most to gain. With her mother in jail, she would inherit everything. Narcy chose not to testify, but Cristobal took the stand 
and declared his innocence. Despite the prosecution's evidence, including credit card receipts, cell phone logs, and surveillance video, he continued to point the finger at his niece. But the jury didn't buy it. Both Narcy and her brother were convicted and sentenced to life in prison. At the age of 56, it's likely she'll never step outside the prison walls. Afterwards, Bernice's sister Maxine told reporters, Women's jails aren't easy. She'll get justice there. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Jay Cook and Tanya Van Kallenborg. High school sweethearts, Jay and Tanya set out on a road trip from Victoria to Seattle. But once they crossed the border, they came face to face with evil. It would take DNA and new technology 30 years to catch their killer. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects from Vaseline Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers. <laughs>